The business of culture, the culture of business, creatives, media and technology, markets and politics. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. Youngkin comes to Virginia government, I mean, an absolute rookie, an apprentice governor. You know, he has made clear he's not ruling out other options. I think it's safe to say that what he is doing is trying to run out the string here long enough to see what happens with Trump or not, and whether he might be able to make some sort of fuller play nationally. Back with us, the dynamic Virginia political reporting duo of Jeff Shapiro and Michael Pope. We visit Governor Glenn Youngkin's national ambitions, the prominent Democratic congresswoman being targeted by the GOP in the midterm, and how the Supreme Court's reversal of Roe v. Wade will play out in the purpling Old Dominion. Stick around. This episode is made possible by the support of Salomon & Ludwin, a boutique wealth management firm dedicated to helping families make smart financial decisions. You worked hard and sacrificed to create and build wealth. They treat advice given to you with the respect your journey deserves. For over 30 years, Salomon & Ludwin has earned a reputation of trust and confidence, recognized by Barron's as a Hall of Fame advisor. More at SalomonLudwin.com. Full Disclosure Podcast, NPR, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts. The link is FullDRadio.com, FullDRadio.com. Follow on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at handle FullDRadio. And a shout out to my listeners on WVTF Radio IQ, Virginia's NPR news station. You can message me to carry Full Disclosure on your air. Joining me on a secure, dedicated line connecting Alexandria, Virginia with Richmond, Virginia, uh, Michael Pope and Jeff Shapiro. You recognize them as the combo of Shapiro and Pope. You hear them every Friday on Virginia Public Radio. They're as well known as Sacco and Vanzetti, McNeil and Lehrer, Viali Stock and Bloom. How are you again, gentlemen? Well, thank you. I hope that uh, Michael and uh, and and I uh, don't... Uh don't achieve a fate uh, comparable to Sacco and Vanzetti. Yeah, Sacco and Vanzetti is kind of a deep cut there, Robin. I'm sorry. Jeff Shapiro is, of course, veteran political columnist at the Richmond Times-Dispatch. Michael Pope has been all over NPR. You've seen his byline everywhere. He has been in the New York Daily News, uh, has written for the Alexandria Gazette Packet. He has written four books. Again, we connect on Glenn Youngkin because he's in the news this week. Now, the stars that aligned to get him elected after Joe Biden, a year after Joe Biden handily won Virginia. It seems strange that he is back in kind of these culture war territories with the transgender bathroom bill. Will you explain how that came to be? I was also the impression that he would rather kind of be on the fence about these things in a state that has gone purplish blue, but that he's indulging in this stuff a few months ahead of the contested midterm election. Gosh, Robin, you know, the governor has a uh dual constituencies. He has the constituency here in uh, Virginia, uh, to which he is ultimately not accountable because remember, his is a single non-renewable term. And then there is that constituency, potential prospective constituency beyond the borders of of Virginia, uh, looking for uh, a presidential candidate, uh, assuming maybe, possibly, uh, that Donald Trump isn't around. Well, you know, Robin, you said it seems strange that the governor was venturing into this territory. Um, I would disagree with that. I think this is right in, in line with what he campaigned on doing. I mean, if you think about 
his campaign for governor, it was about parents' rights and right. you know making sure that parents had a voice in the classroom. Um, also, don't forget he campaigned against critical race theory, which is actually not taught in Virginia schools. So there's not a lot of action to take there. This is an action where he can achieve some amount of action, although it's really questionable. I mean, if you take a look at what the governor did is, you know, his Department of Education issued guidelines. School boards across Virginia are going to look at those guidelines and say, eh, thanks very much, but we're not going to adopt this. You know, if you look at the previous Governor Ralph Northam's guidelines, he had the opposite guidelines, which is to say that, you know, the the pronouns that the student wants should be respected by the school. And, you know, only 13 of the of Virginia's 133 school divisions actually adopted the Northam guidelines. So I think moving forward, what we're going to see with the Yunkin guidelines is a whole bunch of school divisions across Virginia saying, thanks, but no thanks. We're going to keep our policies. You know, Michael, I'm reminded of your neck of the woods when after, I, I think he won uh, Glenn Yunkin and he was in Alexandria at a, I don't know, a, a shop ride or a giant food or something. And he it was wasn't a safe wearing way, a mask, yeah. a mm-hmm. safe way. And someone called him out and he gave the anodyne response. You know, we're all making choices. He's like, you're in Alexandria, buddy. Read the room. I thought that was, <laughs> it tells you how, how multi-chromatic Richmond is. I don't think, you know, Virginia is. Nobody would have cared. If I thought Richmond the mayor was going to give that, that person, a, like, a, you know, the key to the city or something. But uh, I, I think we still never got to the identity of that person. So I, that person certainly could be a celebrity in, in Alexandria. She sounded more like a Brooklynite or an Upper West Sider than anything else. <laughs> like, you're in Alexandria, pal. But you know what? Take me back to that campaign. Again, underscore for our listeners that this is a peculiar election in Virginia. The governor is term limited to one you know, consecutive term. Uh, he could come back, of course, like Terry McAuliffe tried to do. Uh, but you know, it was the first true large-scale election a year after Joe Biden was elected. So people were champing on, on the bit to put in a protest vote, whatever it was, critical race theory. They come in in 2021. He wins by a decent margin. But I don't recall him running with Donald Trump or pursuing the election denialism. And I'm trying to square that with uh, Yunkin on the road this week in Arizona stumping on behalf of Carrie Lake in her bid for the governor. And that is involving a lot of election denialism. I don't know, Rob, Robin, that that uh, that Glenn Youngkin necessarily uh, refused, failed, declined well, Refresh to... my memory, because it wasn't... I don't remember them stumping together. Well, the, there were... Um, uh, the, the stagecraft here was, was excellent. It's not as if, uh, you know, Youngkin and Trump appeared together, but there were ways, again, theatrical ways, that that endorsement, uh, there were at least two by Trump of Youngkin were telegraphed to the Republican base. Uh, there were these uh, telephone conference calls, uh, uh, appearances by former president, but there were a lot of things that Yunkin was saying and not that were clearly uh, parroting positions, ideas, themes uh, uh, of the Trumpy, Trump variety. I mean, there was a point in this 21 campaign where Glenn Yunkin wasn't saying whether, you know, Joe Biden was, was duly elected and, hmm. and whether the, the election for president was carried out and conducted with, you know, out uh, tomfoolery and, and shenanigans, all the things that, that Donald Trump 
incorrectly says. Uh, but but at the top of your question, I, I think, is the idea that in Virginia and in New Jersey, the two states that elect governors, the two states that have statewide elections in the year immediately following a presidential election, that some special significance is, is assigned to these elections, that the, perhaps they are leading indicators of where the nation is going. And of course, there's that accident of geography that Virginia is hard by Washington, D.C., the seat of the national and to some degree the international right, right. press. So uh, there are a lot of uh, uh, out-of-town reporters who can you know, straggle across the Potomac into Virginia and write a story about um, this um, interesting election in a blue state in which a red party candidate is threatening. And voila, he wins narrowly 1.9 percentage points, 63,000 votes. I think it, it, it's interesting because these were ideal conditions for a Republican. Biden, uh, who had carried the state by 10 percentage points, was in the tank, uh, excuse me, underwater with the Virginia uh, electorate. Inflation was spiking. There was that embarrassment in Afghanistan. There were lots of things going on that discouraged Democrats, angered uh, independents, and enraged uh, Republicans. And okay, yet- fair, fair enough, Jeff. But okay, he's stumping on behalf of candidate Lake in Arizona. And just let me read from Politico. Lake will be the highest profile, most MAGA-aligned candidate Youngkin has campaigned for to date. She's embraced Trump's false claim of the 2020 election was stolen, railed against COVID vaccine mandates, and turned the media into a punching bag. Polls have shown her in a tight race with Democratic Secretary of State Katie Hobbs in a state that was narrowly won by President Joe Biden. I haven't seen him appear publicly or go wholeheartedly MAGA election denialism. What you're saying is that the the craft here in a state as peculiar as Virginia and one that has trended blue is that he's he, he just telegraphed enough of it through conference call, through telephony. He, he, he was, Youngkin, he was in Michigan campaigning for uh, that state's Republican candidate who is a full-on MAGA Trump-backed candidate. Uh, in fact, uh, Michael and I in our weekly conversations had uh, talked about that and the, and the governor going, if you will, full MAGA uh, in, in that um, that visit as well. Uh, clearly, Glenn Youngkin is uh, interested in elevating his profile. To some degree, there are there is a peril associated with uh, these out-of-state appearances. Uh, he was in Nevada uh, not long ago, also supporting a, a Trump-backed candidate for governor. Uh, if, if some of these candidates uh, win, presumably uh, Youngkin will take some credit uh, for that. Uh, if these candidates are defeated, uh, Youngkin presumably will say, well, really, my model uh, is uh, the way for Republicans to go in this this Trumpy environment. So Robin, you Robin, you mentioned telegraphing things using telephony. I want to bring, I want to bring up another tele, which is telephone. Jeff Shapiro just talked about the telephone town hall that Yunkin had with Donald Trump last year during the campaigns. It's important to remember that telephone town hall with Yunkin and Trump was not open to the press. It was only open to supporters. And so we never got audio of that telephone town hall. Also important to remember, there are no photographs of Yunkin 
in his sweater vest hanging out next to Donald Trump. Like the there's an important visual element here where, you know, the McAuliffe campaign, of course, tried to tie Trump to Yunkin at every opportunity they could. But they were missing that visual element of Trump and Yunkin standing on a stage together. You never saw that. This was part of that carefully choreographed debate, or not debate, um, dance that they were doing all during the campaign. The Yunkin folks were trying to kind of semi-embrace Trump, but not really embrace him, but make it make it clear to the MAGA voters that he's your guy and he's with you. I think what's happening now with Carrie Lake is the governor is feeling a little bit more comfortable to embrace the MAGA side of things and be seen in public with some of these some of the, some of these people that are a, a bit more on the Trumpy side of things. Um, although still to this day, not with Trump himself, not yet. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You're listening to Michael Pope. He is part of the tandem of Shapiro and Pope with Jeff Shapiro of the Richmond Times-Dispatch. Michael has been a regular on Virginia Public Radio and NPR, uh, wrote four books. And this wonderful tandem of Pope and Shapiro is on Virginia Public Radio every Friday. Is covering the Virginia landscape in politics, VA Gov, if you will. Talk to me about this perceived kind of uh, triumvirate of nationally aspiring governors. You have Ron DeSantis, obviously, in Florida, Greg Abbott in Texas. Both of them are are dueling to kind of channel bigger on, on immigration, being tough on immigration. And then you kind of get the sense that Yunkin at times is mentioned in similar circles as a national aspirant. I mean, what are you guys hearing from inside the Yunkin operation? Well, you know, I, Michael and I have talked about this uh, many times. I think that uh, the the Yunkin world should be, you know, commended for its uh, its message discipline. One of the things that uh, I think really distinguishes uh, Yunkin uh, as a political communicator is this uh, two track, uh, at minimum, two track comms policy. You know, in this era of uh, social media. Uh, this governor is particularly aggressive uh, on on Twitter. Uh, a chance to you know tell his story, if you will, unfiltered, or as as uh, Carl Rove put it, bypassing the reality based media. Uh, there is a good deal of um, of simpatico, if not symbiosis, uh, between um, Yunkin and conservative media. Uh, whether it's Fox News or the Washington Times or the Washington Examiner, these are outlets from from which uh, the, the the coverage is um, unchallenged, if uh, if not uh, at times adoring. And then there is the uh, Virginia press, specifically the State House press, that covers him on a daily basis with which his engagement can be charitably described as um, as selective. Now, to the governor's credit, uh, he is, uh, uh, and uh, I guess underscoring the cynicism with which he chooses to communicate, he is clearly taking advantage as well of the diminished state of the statehouse press corps. Uh, there are far fewer of us covering him on a continuing basis I, I suspect that, uh, well, it's clear this was certainly something that the campaign emphasized, and it's clearly in place uh, during the administration, uh, that this is a, um, this is a group of, of reporters which the, the governor feels he can generally bypass 
and engage only uh, occasionally, and I think uh, from what we have seen, in largely heavily staged, uh, very theatrical events. How does this sell in Northern Virginia, Michael? I mean, you, I'm talking about the transgender uh, student bill right now. He's uh, proposing new policies for Virginia schools regarding how they treat transgender students, including restricting the bathrooms they can and can't use and which pronouns they may go by. I can imagine that this is table stakes in in Roanoke or Southwest Virginia, even parts of you know Central Virginia, Powhatan, everything. But I don't. I, I can't imagine it selling well in McLean. Alexandria, Arlington, that it's actually toxic. I remember covering it in North Carolina with the bathroom bill in 2016, and a lot of the furniture manufacturers and Fortune 500 companies and the NBA were kind of compelled to protest the state. Well, it's not selling. I mean, it's the answer to your question. I think it's widely unpopular. I'm sure there are some supporters, but they're in the minority here. I think what you're going to find is the school boards in Northern Virginia are not going to like these guidelines from the governor. I mean, if you take a look at part of the guidelines are about pronouns, for example. So the guidelines say that schools cannot tell teachers that they shouldn't misgender students, right? So like that's can be perceived by many people as bullying. So if there's a student who, you know, identifies with a certain gender and wants to use the pronouns of that gender, but then the teacher consistently misgenders the student, that's you know going to be seen as bullying by a lot of people. And yet th- these guidelines say that the schools shouldn't have policies that prevent students prevent teachers from misgendering students. Um, also important to point out that you know these school districts can reject the guidelines. They don't have to follow these guidelines. In, in fact, if you look at the North the previous example here of Northam's guidelines, there were nine school divisions that took them up and specifically rejected them. Um, and then there were 90 that never took action on them anyway. So, I mean, I, I think that's probably what we're going to see in Northern Virginia. But what are, what are you trying to telegraph here? I mean, is the idea that this would bounce to a court and maybe make him a cause celeb that the Virginia Supreme Court or somebody picked it up and the U.S. Supreme Court picked it up? Why veer into this if we're on the brink of a very close midterm election? What can you possibly parlay this into? This is all about uh, energizing a a Republican base, uh, just as we have seen uh, Democrats use issues such as as, uh, gender, transgender, to energize the the Democratic base. Uh, There is not a lot that Glenn Youngkin has done as a governor, uh, and Michael may disagree, that uh, suggests he's interested in broadening his base, expanding his appeal. Uh, He has leaned in heavily on a lot of the issues, a lot of the themes that uh, most intrigue and energize Republican and and Republican-leaning voters. I guess one could say, well, you know, the tax cuts would have to have some broader appeal. Uh, I think that uh, depends on on who you're asking. One of the uh, the important footnotes to the, the, the debate over over gay rights, over trans rights. There are a large number of companies, large companies that are based in Virginia uh, that have uh, diverse workforces and to promote their standing within the marketplace, emphasize the diversity within their workforce. You know, uh, one of the first economic development announcements made by this governor was basically picking up one that had been 
worked for some time by his predecessor, Ralph Northam, Lego, the, the, the children's block company. One of the things that uh, emerged after that announcement uh, was language that um, Lego had uh, tucked away and uh, was, was prepared to roll out and, in effect, did that underscored the, the company's commitment to diversity um, and its sensitivity to gay people, to, to trans people. These are not slices of, of the Virginia population to whom this governor has shown a great deal of interest or sensitivity. And then your neck of the woods, Michael, is a Fortune 500 bastion. I mean, I think, what is it? Hilton or yeah, Hilton is there. Boeing talk about Fairfax County Economic Development Corp. Uh, they're very different reactions, I think, to a kind of a South of the Mason Dixon line mentality. Yeah, I mean, I I suppose the Northern Virginia ethos is much closer to kind of inside the Beltway in in terms of CEOs of companies, major com- major corporations, and you know all of the kind of policies that they have been adopting in recent years. I would not take issue with Shapiro's assertion that the governor seems to have done little to expand his appeal. I mean, I think he's so far been certainly giving his base red meat in terms of giving them what they wanted. The tax cuts don't hurt, of course. I mean, I'm sure that might broaden his appeal among some Republicans. Um, You know, I want to touch before we move on from the potential of Governor Youngkin running for president, touch on the precedent here. So. It's hard to be the governor of Virginia and run for president. Jeff Shapiro can talk about the the difficulty Doug Wilder faced as Mm. a governor of Virginia who was running for president. It didn't go so well for Doug Wilder. Um, Also, if you look at the, I mean, there is some precedent here for governors of Virginia becoming president. There are three of them, Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, and John Tyler, You'll notice they're all from a very long time ago. Um, John Tyler became president in the 1840s. So that's your most recent precedent there. Um, Worth noting, uh, Virginian William Henry Harrison became governor of the Indiana Territory and Virginian Woodrow Wilson became governor of New Jersey. Um, So you could say that there's, you know, precedent in the 1900s, but still we're we're talking about following the single term rule. I mean, how old is that? For example, you're not running. As opposed to other governors, you're not running for re-election, or in this case, maybe at best. Well, well actually, it's worth worth pointing out here, James Monroe actually had two non-consecutive terms. He was the 12th governor of Virginia and also the 16th governor of Virginia. And uh, that second term actually was cut short because he became secretary of state and was no longer governor of Virginia. Yeah, the single non-renewable term for the most part goes back to 1851. Uh, and there were any number of governors um, uh, as Michael, uh, I suspect, will concur, uh, who uh, served uh, ably, but without the sanction of the people, that uh, they were creatures, they were creatures of the legislature. Uh, that was uh, that was the old way of, of of doing business. The problem that I think uh, uh, Virginia governors run into uh, is that, and this goes back to what we were discussing earlier, that uh, you know the the Virginia elections. Are are looked on as uh, you know sort of mini national referenda. Sure. Uh, and there are, I mean, if one looks at the essentially the fourteen governors elected in what we call the competitive era from nineteen sixty nine forward, when Linwood Holton, the first Republican governor of the twentieth century, was elected, 
at least 11 of those governors were sucked up in or jumped into uh, the maelstrom of, of national politics. Uh, one was a, uh, a declared candidate for president, Doug Wilder. That didn't go anywhere. And by the time he left office, largely uh, because of building resentments only aggravated by his national ambitions, leaving office with a 25% approval rating. Jeff Shapiro, actually, can I ask you about that? Um, so you covered Governor Wilder running for president. You just laid out uh, a little bit of why it was difficult for him. Talk about the difficulty of being a sitting governor while also running for president in Virginia. Like, why did this not go so well for Wilder? And what can Youngkin learn from Wilder's experience? Well, I, I think it's a bit of an, an apples and oranges um, comparison. Uh, Wilder, first of all, as a governor, had you know considerable experience in Virginia state government. I mean, he had been a state senator for 16 years, he'd been elected a lieutenant governor. He certainly knew what was going on around Virginia. He, uh, as Youngkin has, uh, uh, was, was not coy about his uh, national ambitions. There were a lot of people around Governor Wilder who argued that he should not run for president, that it was a needless distraction, that it would only impair his, his administration and complicate his already difficult relationships uh, with a Democratic legislature, a legislature of his uh, of his own party. Youngkin comes to uh, Virginia government, I mean, an absolute rookie, a neophyte, uh, if you will, uh, an apprentice uh, governor. And he is, um, uh, you know, he has made clear that uh, he's... Um, He's not ruling out uh, other options. And I, I think it's safe to say that what he is doing is trying to run out the string here long enough to see what happens with Trump or not, and whether he might be able to make some sort of fuller play nationally. Hold but, that thought. Hold that thought. Full disclosure, please do stay with us. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts. The link is fullderadio.com. Again, fullderadio.com. You can follow on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram at handle fullderadio and message me to carry this show on your air. If you're just joining us, we are joined by Shapiro and Pope, the dynamic duo on Virginia Public Radio. Jeff Shapiro, of course, is the veteran politics reporter, political columnist at the Richmond Times-Dispatch. He's been doing it for more than 40 years. Michael Pope, you hear him on NPR. You see his byline everywhere. He's on with uh, Jeff Shapiro every Friday mornings on Virginia Public Radio. I wish to hear more from you guys. I love those little four-minute segments that Jeff Bossert cues up. Talk to me about what you were saying right there with Trump, the kind of break in case of emergency. If Trump does stumble, there's no shortage of nationally ambitious governors or senators who want to get into the mix. Yes, you have the boilerplate of Ted Cruz and and uh, Tom Cotton from Arkansas, but of course, everybody's talking about Ron DeSantis. I just can't imagine, and somebody indulge me, I can't imagine a Donald Trump at the Republican nominating convention in 2024 kind of magnanimously handing the baton off to one of these guys, especially a a Glenn Youngkin who wasn't quite as sycophantic towards him. He might remember, after all, that he didn't invite him to you know, the Richmond Raceway or other places to stump in person back in 2020. Well, what I, what I, was, um, what I was about to say before the, uh, the break is that 
polls or curiosities, snapshots in time. It was one that didn't get a lot of attention. Michael and I have uh, batted this one about uh, by Roanoke College. It's a poll largely conducted by the students out there. It's kind of an exercise, uh, but we note it. And uh, we noted that um, the governor's uh, approval had ticked up a couple of points. He was at 55% approval from 53% earlier. But, but, 54% of the respondents, and these were Virginia adults, said that the governor should stick with his day job and should just put aside uh, this, uh, this presidential striptease. Uh, so I think even in a suburban-dominated state, one in which the majority of people who live here are from elsewhere, uh, there is this sense that, um, as Mills Godwin said of the governorship, there is no higher honor and that he should focus on getting it done and doing it well and not be so presumptuous as to go tearing off uh, to pillar and, and post uh, in pursuit of his national ambitions, his presumed My, national well, ambitions. Well, let me ask you, Michael, what about immigration? Here in Virginia, we have taken, I've, I've helped resettle Iraqi refugees in central Virginia. We've known about the Afghanis who came after the fall of the country a year ago in northern Virginia. Communities in McLean, Arlington, around you accepted them. How come this hasn't been as red meat for Yunkin as it has been for, say, the governor of Texas or Ron DeSantis in Florida? It is really interesting seeing the competition here between the governor of Texas and the governor of Florida for attention to just how extreme their immig immigration policies can be. When you talk about, you know, moving groups of people seeking asylum in your country to far-flung places without giving the local governments fair warning that they're on their way. I mean, you know, obviously the governor of Texas sort of created this model. And then the governor of Florida said, hey, wait a second, I want a piece of that action. Um, it is interesting that we have not seen Yunkin jump into that quite yet. That could be the case. I kind of doubt it. It doesn't really seem like his style, but maybe it is. I don't know. I want to return to that Roanoke College poll that Jeff Shapiro was just talking about. So sometimes polls tell us contradictory things. So it is true a majority of the respondents of that poll said, you know, Governor Yonkin, stick to your day job, don't run for president. There was another question, though, that caught my attention that said, if the choice were between Governor Yonkin and former President Trump, and you were voting in the Republican primary, mm -hmm. who would you vote for? Or, yeah, the Roanoke College poll um, asked voters, if the choice was between Governor Yonkin and former President Trump, and you were voting in the Republican primary, who would you vote for? And the respondents said, Glenn Yonkin, at 37%, Trump had only 29%. Yeah, but if you include someone else, whoever someone else may be, Ted Cruz, Ron DeSantis, it's 41%. So uh, there is a, clearly a, a reservoir of goodwill uh, for Governor Yunkin in his uh, home state. But whether it's enough to win a presidential primary, who knows? Gentlemen, shift gears for a minute to the topic of uh, the GOP trying to win back the U.S. House. I'm thinking about Elaine Luria of the 2nd District of Virginia. She featured prominently, the naval veteran did, in the January 6th hearings. I'm thinking about Abigail Spanberger, who was my congresswoman, but she's apparently been bumped north closer to D.C. Tell me about these two and the other targets and the state of play. Well, up in Northern Virginia, I'm going to defer to uh, uh, Michael to talk about uh, Congresswoman Spanberger's campaign. Of course, because of redistricting, 
the seventh district was reoriented from suburban Richmond to one of the outer suburbs of Northern Virginia, Prince William County. Yeah, the seventh congressional district that we are going to see on the ballot this year bears very little resemblance to the old seventh congressional district. It's totally, not totally changed, but it really, you know, used to be kind of a uh, Richmond suburbs of Richmond congressional seat. And now, as Jeff Shapiro just said, it's it's largely a Northern Virginia seat. Um, and so, you know, Spanberger has the challenge of going into areas that she has never represented. And uh, whereas, you know, her Republican challenger has, a you know, is from that part of the district. And so it's, you know, going to be one of the most closely watched seats across the country, certainly. Well, with uh, the addition of Prince William County um, and some other territory that sort of on, that was that was oddly in part part of uh, the, the the seventh stretches of it, that is. Well, what about uh, the second? What about the second in Laureate? I'm thinking about the the drive east on 64 to the beach. Well, that's all considered that, that yeah. is considered probably one of the most uh, closely fought, closely watched campaigns, congressional campaigns this year uh, because of redistricting. Uh, that is uh, essentially a toss-up district, uh, depending on how one looks at it, its history. Uh, it is uh, either slightly Democratic or slightly Republican. But it being an off year, uh, there being historic patterns, for example, districts voting against the party uh, in presidential power, uh, this one is going to be, uh, you know, tight. Elaine Luria sits on the one six committee. She has not hesitated at all to essentially run at Donald Trump. Her opponent, Jen Kiggins, a uh, state senator who was elected in 2019 to the Virginia legislature with the advantage of, of a Republican district but one uh, in which she really went to great lengths to, to separate herself and deftly separated herself from Donald Trump. She used to describe herself as, these are the candidates' words, a normal Republican. Mm. Uh, those aren't the words we're hearing from Jen Kiggins these days. And in this race, in which two Navy veterans are, are going at it, the Democratic candidate uh, doesn't hesitate to talk about Donald Trump and what the one six committee uh, has uncovered, but she's been leaning really hard on abortion rights post Dodd and the sort of stuff that uh, you know is supposed to make a difference in a congressional election, uh, bringing home uh, the bacon. Elaine Luria has probably received more or among the most earmarks of of any member of uh, of, of Congress, that includes, for example, uh, about eleven million dollars for an emergency communication system for the Eastern Shore of Virginia, which is one of the most Republican places uh, on the, uh, the the planet. Both candidates uh, are anchored in in Virginia Beach, a suburb. Clearly, it's going to be closely fought, and if it is decided on the outcomes in some of the surrounding areas, which tend to be more Republican, that could be a, a, a problem for uh, uh, Elaine Luria. The, the second congressional district is by far more competitive and more interesting, I, I think, than the seventh. Um, the interesting thing about the Spanberger race in the seventh congressional district is redistricting made that district slightly more 
democratic, um, whereas it did the opposite in Elaine Luria's district. A redistricting made the second congressional district currently represented by Elaine Luria slightly more Republican. So Luria has all that much more of a challenge in front of her. Um, her opponent is uh, Jen Kagan, state senator. Um, and the, as Jeff Shapiro mentioned, the the January 6th co- committee you know, weighs heavily in that race because Luria has really leaned into this. Uh, she's made a television commercial about it. She, you know, as an outspoken member of the committee, she was featured in that primetime hearing that happened before the summer recess. And, you know, she is facing a Republican who, you know, voted for a $70 million forensic audit of the 2020 election. So, I mean, I think that is certainly an issue that Democrats are going to try to highlight Kiggins, for her part, um, has tried to say, look, I'm not an extremist. Uh, She's tried to make the campaign about the economy, you know, inflation, the rising price of gas. And it really comes down to what is the election going to be about? What is at the top of voters' minds? Is it the cost of gas and the cost of eggs? Or is it, you know, the, the perilous state of democracy and threats, you know, like the one that we saw on January 6th? Do you both buy the prevailing wisdom that the Senate is going to be maintained by Democrats? They might even add a seat or two? Well, there certainly seems to be uh, uh, a promising race or two in places like Pennsylvania, uh, perhaps Ohio, uh, also uh, a hold in uh, Georgia, uh, Wisconsin, maybe. So, oh, and then even North Carolina, uh, there seems to be some um, promise. However, there are certain structural advantages in some of these, particularly in these southern and midwestern states, uh, largely because of the, the Republican gerrymander. That That's going to really magnify votes uh, for Republicans up and down the the ballot in certain areas of those those states. So that's a structural advantage that may yield an important vote or two or three in some of these um, some of these statewide races. Have you ever seen a departing president stick his nose under the tent as much as Donald Trump has? I just can't recall in my adult life. Not a George Herbert Walker Bush. Not a uh, you know, uh, someone who lost kind of a one-term thing, not a George W. Bush obviously went off and he did his paintings. LBJ went off to his ranch and had a lot of alcohol and cigarettes. Uh, there's really no precedent for this. We're still overwhelmingly, especially because of the Mar-a-Lago investigation, talking about this candidate. And we're already two years removed from that election. No, absolutely no precedent for this. I mean, usually what happens, the tradition, long-held tradition, is that you know, former presidents take on kind of an elder statesman kind of a role, and they're not engaged in the day-to-day, you know, workings of politics. And um, obviously, Trump has been transgressive in many ways, and this is one of them. But is it not very Pareto optimal if his presence charges up an otherwise not united Democratic base? Do you see what I'm saying? Has anybody kind of calculated, is there a more optimal prototype? Is it a Yunkin type, Yunkin with streaks of, you know, if you have to build the perfect GOP candidate for 2024 that could take back kind of the the, the silent Biden majority? It, it wouldn't be in the personage of a Donald Trump. I'm not convinced that he could claw back what the seven, most of the 7 million votes that he lost by. I'm really interested in the 
the after action report that's going to come out after this election in 2022, are we going to be saying after the election, gosh, Donald Trump's influence on this election was really disastrous for Republicans and Democrats were really able to capitalize on it the way that they did, you know, in uh, after Trump was elected in 2018. Um, that's one option. Or we're going to be saying, gosh, Donald Trump has a much greater influence on the Republican Party than we realized. And it might even be successful electorally. And that's the mindset we're going to be going with, you know, going into the next presidential cycle. So, uh, you know, what happens in this election in 2022 is going to shape actually Trump's influence in the Republican Party moving forward. If we've seen anything, um, particularly in the national coverage, uh, we've seen that there are lots of issues that are synonymous with Donald Trump that publicans expect their candidates, actual in perspective, to emphasize. But they have some appreciation for style. And this is where I think a guy like Glenn Youngkin comes in. You know, he is... Um, he comports himself well. He's he has the, his manners are are are, are decent. Um, he there was I think it was the New York Times who said you know he he speaks the the, the Trump patois, and I think that's um, uh, that's important. But it, but it, it in in a way that is more pleasing to the ear. But again, I'm going to press you both. Can you actually see a Donald Trump anointing any of these guys at the nominating convention to the extent that he has a no, rump? No, that's not his style. He has a rump of the party that's beholden to him. I'm thinking about this J.D. Vance uh, rally. What was it in Youngstown? You surely read about it this week that he's there kind of saying, yeah, I'm endorsing this guy. But he literally said this guy was kissing my butt to get this because he's still sore about him being called the American Hitler or whatever it is. I mean, old, old wounds don't tend to heal very quickly and there's no love lost. Well, keep in mind as, uh, as well at that, <laughs> that rally and not, not unlike, uh, I guess, the earlier appearance that Trump made in Pennsylvania, uh, you know, the, the former president just showed up. Uh, the Republican candidates acknowledged that he was there and uh, everybody kind of, you know, went on. Remember, in some of these uh, races, and I think Pennsylvania and Ohio uh, are among them, even with uh, the, the the seeming promise of a, a robust Republican vote, uh, there is nonetheless a determined effort to appeal uh, to independence. You know, for a bit of a uh, a bit of a, a a cushion, and so you see candidates like J.D. Vance, like Oz in Pennsylvania. Uh, trying to, uh, you know, shimmy a bit towards the uh, center, knowing that, uh, as you know, Richard Nixon said, you know, Republicans win nominations by running to the right. They win general elections by running to the middle. Yeah. And I, I think it's also interesting to note um, this discussion about candidate quality, which is you know, a kind of anodyne way of saying perhaps these candidates aren't necessarily the best candidate for a general election. I mean, clearly they won in the primary. So, you know, it, it will be interesting to see on election day, does a general electorate agree with the 
candidate quality that Republican voters picked in the primary um, or or not. And and so, here's a question. If it does backfire with the U.S. Senate and the Dems say gain a seat or two, is that then sufficient to fell a Donald Trump candidacy? Can they people come out the recriminations, the hesitating postmortems the morning after and say that it was because of candidate quality and Donald Trump couldn't resist with the 2020 grievance and Dr. Oz and J.D. Vance and his animosity against Mitch McConnell that the Republicans couldn't take back a Senate that was largely theirs to recapture? Well, you know, uh, one of the things that uh, I've been reading in, in the national press is that there is this sort of this debate uh, within, you know, Trump world over how and when to um, uh, announce for 2024. And that there was, there's still an argument to be made for uh, announcing before the election, anticipating continuing difficulties with the Department of Justice and these various other investigations around the country, civil and criminal, and set up a presidential campaign is essentially a crusade against uh, these uh, political prosecutions. Yeah, I think, you know, Trump seems to be likely to run regardless of what the outcome of the election is. I mean, I don't know that that would stop him. I mean, you say fell his candidacy. I mean, the I think Trump is probably going to run one way or the other. It's just a matter of when he makes the announcement. I mean, the, I guess the question about felling his candidacy would be, are there Republicans willing and able to take him on and knock him off in a, in a presidential primary? And I haven't seen that yet. Close us out in the six minutes we have left. I've typically called this part of the interview what free skate, referring to my old you know, childhood roller skating. <laughs> you get freestyle skating. What should we be covering? What should we be following that maybe is getting short shrifted out there in the press? Well, you know, let's take this um, uh, conversation and, 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 and bend it back towards uh, Richmond and, and Virginia. Uh, you know, we've touched on um, uh, the Da decision, you know, post Roe. But this is uh, this is definitely a, an issue in which Glenn Youngkin, I guess, uh, with that potential national constituency uh, in mind, is arguably out of touch with um, with Virginians. He's proposing a thick 15 week ban, much as uh, Lindsey Graham is at the national level. That was welcome development um, as far as a lot of national Republicans uh, were concerned. But what's interesting in suburban dominated Virginia is that a comfortable majority of Virginians like the abortion laws as they stand, which means the first two trimesters, there are no restrictions for ending a pregnancy, and there are only the most modest restrictions for ending a pregnancy in the third trimester. Uh, so, you know, what is, um, you know, what is Glenn Youngkin trying to uh, accomplish here, you know, other than putting points on the board with a, a national constituency? This is going to be a big issue in the 23 legislative elections, all in fresh districts, by the way. And it will determine whether uh, the Republicans can hold their majority in the House, perhaps take back the Senate uh, as well, or will we... Uh, See, uh, continue to see uh, continued divided uh, legislative government in Virginia. Uh, if not, uh, perhaps certainly the Democrats would like to, this to happen. Uh, the Democrats restoring their majority in the House, and that's going to be uh, uh, those elections will be certainly a measure of the governor's pulling power. I, I know that Michael and I have batted this one around as well, that after this legislative election in in twenty twenty three, lots of people are going to be saying. Lots of legislators are going to be saying, well, 
okay, my term extends, if I'm a senator, beyond this governor. The delegates will be saying, okay, well, I have to defend this seat in two years uh, on a ticket led by someone other than Glenn Youngkin. What's that all going to uh, mean for the governor's uh, leverage with the legislature? Michael Pope, close us out. I would point listeners' attention to a series of environmental stories that I find interesting. One is the requirement for electric vehicles. So by 2035, which might seem like a long way but off, but it's not really, um, all vehicles delivered to Virginia for sale in Virginia must be electric vehicles. 100% of them must be electric vehicles by 2035. That is a huge deadline. It's tied to the California standard. Republicans want to undo that. But right now, that's the deadline that we're looking at. Another issue here is this Mountain Valley pipeline to move fracked natural gas from West Virginia into Virginia. There was some discussion that to get the Joe Manchin's vote for the Inflation Reduction Act, that some deal might be cut that might allow the permitting to happen for that pipeline. Uh, That's still kind of in the works and may or may not happen. And then there is this huge wind farm that is may or may not happen off the coast of Virginia Beach, one of the largest wind farms in the country, excuse me, in the world. Uh, this is a huge wind farm that's going to be off the coast of Virginia Beach. And right now, Dominion Energy, who wants to build this thing, is battling with the regulators at the State Corporation Commission about what kind of rules, what kind of requirements that will be um, on Dominion for the power, the amount of power that will come out of this thing. So they're battling over the regulations and the the rules around it. Um, but if that happens, it will be huge for wind power and for renewable sources of energy in Virginia and across the country and even the world, because this will be such a huge wind farm. Um, so a bunch of different environmental things happening right now. Jeff Shapiro, political columnist at the Richmond Times-Dispatch, veteran political columnist. He's been doing it for more than 40 years. And Michael Pope, of course, of Virginia Public Radio, the dynamic duo of Pope and Shapiro, which you could listen to every Friday, at the very least, on Virginia Public Radio. As you know, you're always welcome to come on this show. And when you're back down here for the assembly or whatever it is, uh, Michael, you know that you have a vegan seitan burger on me. (laughs) I'll take you up on that. Full disclosure, special thanks to Claire Morgan at Notterly. We podcast to NPR, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts, where the link is fulldradio.com. Please subscribe, rate, and recommend us to friends and family. And you can follow along on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn at handle Full D Radio. Catch me on MSNBC and NPR's Here and Now. I'm Robin Farzad. Thank you so much for listening and back with you next week. <laughs>